0: every Sunday we sit here under a sermon and listen to the Word of God. Uh, It's very odd in our modern day life uh, to take 40 minutes out of your week to listen to someone talk. The only time you probably do that outside of church is if you have to for your job or if you have to because you go to school. There's a lot of have-tos but you choose to be here to sit under the Word of God and why do we still preach 2,000 years later after Jesus has come and gone and uh, why are we still trying to sit under sermons? Well, one of the key reasons among many that we come and sit under the Word of God is because every Scripture in the Bible points to Jesus. And that's one of the key reasons. We can easily get lost in theology and interpretations of Scripture and all these different things, but ultimately everything from Genesis 1 to the end of the Word of God points towards this man, Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, but was also a particular Jewish man from Nazareth who lived 2000 years ago. And that's why we do it. And he came to declare the good news, the good news of God to all the world. And that's why we look at Jesus from every reference in scripture. Jesus was at the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago. Is there any NFL fans out there? I know a couple of my mates in the NFL. Uh, He was at the Super Bowl the NFL, which is one of the biggest sporting organisations in the world, and the Super Bowl is almost as big as the Olympics and the World Cup, or one day in the sporting calendar, the NFL had banned religious ads from being showed or being associated with anything that was NFL. But this campaign called He Gets Us, which is about Jesus getting us, as in He understands us, has broken through the NFL's policy and actually reversed their policy on religious ads because this ad campaign so well communicated Jesus without offering any weird, unusual, religious-type messages. I'm going to show you a video today of one of their ad campaigns. You can go on YouTube and have a look at them. It's really, really interesting. But I want you to look at the presentation of the gospel in this ad campaign that has gone to hundreds of millions of people all around the world. We can play that now. A rebel took to the streets. He recruited others to join him. They quit their jobs, left their families and swore allegiance to him. They roamed the hood, challenged authority and made a lot of people uneasy. Community leaders feared them. Religious leaders abhorred them. Law enforcement labeled them outlaws. We have to shut them down, they said, get them off the streets. Protect our communities from these troublemakers. But they weren't part of a gang spreading hate and terror. They were spreading love. So this is a great example of what I want to talk to you about today. It's the gospel, which is a third way. The gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. So it's neither doing all the right things and obeying all the rules to keep God happy, and it's neither rejecting all the rules and doing something radical outside of the rules. The gospel is a third way. And this He Gets Us campaign has spent $100 million so far creating and perpetuating these ads all across mainly America, but if you watch it online on, on YouTube, then you can see them as well. And it presents the gospel in a way that we're not used to. The campaign's received a lot of criticism, as you could imagine. Well, wow, 100 million dollars that should be spent on homeless people, or 100 million dollars for that ad, and it doesn't even tell people that they're sinners, and they need to repent. So we can get caught on technicalities, but the point of the gospel is it presents a third way to follow Jesus, and it presents that way of following Jesus, this is the real power of the gospel, in a way that's understandable. Jesus presented God's good news to the world in a way that people could understand it. And what I love about he gets his campaign, is it presents the gospel with images and with language in a way that most people will understand, although the ad's obviously a little bit Americanized, we probably don't see some of those images where we live, but you know, you, you get the point. Tim Keller says that the gospel is neither religion nor irreligion, but something else entirely, a third way of relating to God through grace. Because of this, we minister in a uniquely balanced way that avoids the errors of either extreme and faithfully communicates the sharpness of the gospel. As human beings, we tend to drift towards either religion or towards irreligion. You know, sometimes it's just our temperament, our personality will be more rules orientated. And, you know, if you're like me and you're born first in your family, we tend to bend that way a little bit. We follow the rules and if we follow the rules, we get stuff. And if we do the right thing, good things kind of happen. And that works out some of the time, but you grow up and realise it doesn't always work. You know, the the other way, and some people say temperament, some people say upbringing, some people say experiences tend to float more towards irreligion and you just want to reject kind of rule stuff and conformity and fitting in like that. And as I say religion and irreligion today, I also don't want you to get caught on churchy language. A lot of us here are very churchy church, we've been here for a long time, some of us here, it's our first day or we're just looking at Christianity, we're not even sure if we believe in this stuff yet. But I want you to get caught on churchy language here either because some of the most religious people I've met are people who don't follow Jesus and follow an AFL football team. Like, they are more regular than me in their attendance. They give way more money to sport than I would ever give. They bet on sport. Like, I mean, and then they criticize the church because I tithe, where they tithe way more than 10% to their AFL sports team into betting for them. So sometimes religion isn't just spiritual, it's also conforming to a way of life and worshipping something else in a religious type way and irreligion isn't always being the cool Christian that doesn't really fit in and wears the different clothes. Sometimes irreligion is secular, often it's rejecting God but sometimes it's not rejecting God. You can come to church and consider yourself a bad boy but that's not the Gospel either, there's a better way and a third way. The Gospel, as I've been explaining it to you, can easily be captured in the cradle, the cross and the crown. It's a really good way, simple way, visual way, To remember what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. Remember last week we said that it's the centre of God's big story is the gospel. So the cradle represents the fact that God, who was God, came down and became a man. So it's an upside down message, the gospel, which means God became man so that man can be with God. It means that the poor become rich, it means that the weak become strong, it means that the last become first. Jesus flipped everything on its head. No one had even heard a message like this before 2,000 years ago. It was a Roman, Greco-Roman world that was used to war, the strong win. The rich were corrupt and oppressed the poor and Jesus flipped it all on its head. The, The gospel is also inside out and this is the cross element. Jesus lived his life and he died on the cross. This is this second part of the gospel and the cross says that everything about the gospel is inside out. Everything starts with the heart and then goes to the outside. We want to live the right way, but not as religious. Conforming, we want to live the right way because our heart has been transformed. Therefore, we want to conform to the ways of God because we believe it in our heart. It's about the inner life. It's about prayer. It's about beginning on the inside and then flowing to the outside. The gospel is also forwards back, and this represents the crown. So the crown part of the gospel is Jesus rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, being crowned king of all the universe, and right now still, Reigning and ruling over all the nations of the earth, one day coming again as a second coming. This is the forward back kingdom, which means it's now, but it's forever. It's happened, but it's still happening. This is the gospel. It goes backwards and forwards. I said to you last week, when a miracle happens or when God touches our heart, that's heaven breaking through onto the earth and there's a miracle. Jesus said, when there's a miracle, the kingdom of God has come to you because it breaks through. When we come out on the front, we have a prayer line. When we've sat in a life group, our heart has changed. Maybe the first time you met Jesus, it was a spectacular conversion event. But then life isn't always miracles and prayer lines and moments over coffees where your life transforms. It's not always that because we're still heading towards that final reality where it will be this glorious, transforming, no tears, kind of heaven on earth renewal that we experience. So it's forward, it's going to happen, it is happening, but it also is now and it hasn't happened and sometimes we miss the mark and we get touches and foretastes but we are hungering for that full feast that will come one day the reality of the gospel is this though that every human being whether they go to church or not whether they live in australia or not whether they're here today or they're going to be born tomorrow every human being must respond to the gospel we either accept it or we reject it and if we think we don't care about the gospel that is rejecting the gospel anyways. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 15 that sums up the third way of the gospel so well. And if you've got your Bibles with you or your phones, I really encourage you to pull it out today because we're going to walk through a little bit of scripture together. And I want you to really suck this in today and then even be able to read it and meditate on it during the week. So it's called the parable of the prodigal son, which for some of us will be familiar, but I don't want you to switch off into your religious, I've heard this before, I want you to be with me today and look, is there a third way to hear this story today, a way that I've never heard it before? So it's in the Gospel of Luke, which is, when we say the Gospel of Luke, we mean that Luke presented his Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in his own way. And interesting, in Luke's version of the good news of the Gospel about Jesus, he was aiming at the irreligious, So he wrote his gospel for people who didn't know Jesus and people who were not Jews. So a lot of Luke's gospel is full of this upside down kingdom. There's a lot about women. Women are mentioned almost in every chapter of Luke where they're not so mentioned in other gospels because the plight of women, the gospel picks up the plight of women. It talks a lot about the poor. It talks a lot about hospitality. It talks a lot about social justice, it talks a lot about these things because Luke was presenting the gospel to a people that were irreligious, that were Greeks, that were Romans, that were not Jews, the gospel for the irreligious. Let's start in verse 11, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story, a man had two sons, lots and lots and lots of stories in the Bible, especially the Old Testament about two sons. Two sons. Usually in the Old Testament though, it's the younger son who's the good son who wins in the end and it's the older son who gets robbed of a birthright or gets robbed of their rightful position. Jesus flips it around. In this story, it's the younger son who's the prodigal. Prodigal means reckless. Verse 12, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons and a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything... When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me in as a hired servant. Let's stop there for a moment and look at this prodigal son, this younger son. He's reckless, he's selfish. He's wasteful, he's impulsive, he's a rule breaker, he's a bad boy. Think Han Solo in Star Wars, think Tyler Durden in Fight Club, think for the younger guys, Draco, Malfoy, okay, he's the bad guy. He's the guy, the agitator, the antagonist, the one who never follows the rules, the one who's always a pain in the backside, but he's kind of likable like Han Solo. He's kind of like, you know, friendly like Draco Malfoy. It's kind of cool, like Tyler Durden. But he's the one who doesn't want to fit. Maybe you identify that, maybe more from your younger years, for some of you who are older. It tends to be something that people go through in their teenagers and their 20s. We tend to be fascinated by wild living and breaking rules. We want to push the boundaries. But as we know, at the centre is just really self, selfishness. And this way of living, rejecting God, rejecting the church, rejecting the Bible, rejecting rules, rejecting our family, rejecting fitting in, rejecting doing what we should do and what we're told to do and what our parents would want us to do, it does generally end up in a bit of a pig pen. Often we scrape the barrel, hit rock bottom, burn out, backslide, as we say in the church, which means lose our faith. We get addicted to something, we have an affair, something goes wrong, our marriage falls apart, we lose all our friends. Usually it ends in a place that doesn't really work out for us. We realise our own strength and our own wisdom and our own way of doing life runs aground. For the Jew, they didn't even eat pigs. Jews didn't eat pork, but here's the prodigal son looking at the food of the pigs, and that looks attractive to him. That's how bottom out bottomed out he is that's how much he's hitting rock bottom and that's a very physical thing a very thing to do with food and to do with eating and to do with filling our stomach but pig pens can be all kinds of things they can be emotional we break mentally emotionally we end up in a pig pen of confusion we have no peace we have anxiety we've got to see someone to get help to even get through the day to get out of bed people end up in these positions Relationally, we end up in a pig pen, we lose all our friends, we go through some injustice. Spiritually, we end up in a pig pen, at a wall, in a hard time, a dry time, doubting God, doubting what church is for, doubting all these different things. The problem with the pig pen and this way of living, this reckless way, is that it ultimately is slavery. We ultimately bound, and we're not free. And it's a very obvious example, a very obvious example, a pig pen that you're stuck, you're enslaved, you can't get out, you're not free. And when he comes to his senses, the younger brother says, if I go home, there's freedom. He comes to his senses and realizes I'm stuck here. My way of living just got me stuck, like a slave, I'm bound. I was bound to my money, bound to parties, bound to all these things, now I'm bound in a pig pen, I have no freedom, nowhere to go. So he says, I'll, I'll set off, I'll go home. Because the the father represents freedom. The father represents home sweet home. The father represents peace and rest and unconditional love and protection and support and community. So he comes to his senses and in verse 20, he returns home to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion. Everyone say love and compassion. He ran to his son, the father, and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine that was dead is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. You see the father the father represents the gospel the good news of god the father represents god the father represents the gospel the good news represents home represents church the gospel is always waiting for people the gospel is always expectant of people returning home the gospel is always hoping for reconciliation and for healing Contrast the heart of the father full of love and compassion with the son that was willing to take the money and just run away. The lack of character, the lack of formation, the the scarcity mentality, I'll just take my money and go, I can do it better on my own. Where the father's heart is full of love, full of compassion, the the Greek word in the original text there that's used is the Greek word that actually talks about bowels of compassion. May have heard that terminology before. So it's compassion and love that isn't like up here. It's not mentally like, yes, I love my son. It's not even at this level of feelings of, oh, I feel lovey-dovey. But it's the bowels of compassion. It's deep love and compassion that comes from the gut. It's mercy that's birthed in the gut. It's empathy where you genuinely can put yourself in someone else's shoes and see the pig pen, see, smell the recklessness, see the silliness of this young man and you can feel it. Jesus uses the same word when he says the Samaritan was moved with compassion with the beaten up man on, on the side of the road. It's the word that's used about Jesus when he looks over the city and he has compassion on Jerusalem and he cries, he weeps over them and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And Jesus has moved the bowels of compassion deep within his gut. But notice the father, he doesn't condone the recklessness of the son that ran away. And this is really important part of the gospel. It's not relativism, which is irreligion. He doesn't say, well, you know, you gave it a crack and you learnt your lesson and that's okay. He doesn't He doesn't condone, he doesn't approve, he doesn't say, well, you just did you and you know now you've stuffed up and come back home. There's no condoning of that. Sin still has to be dealt with and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But he also doesn't throw on him, well, now that you're back, well, yes, you know, we have rules in this house and I'm the father of this house and this is how things should run. No, he doesn't also put religion on him or law on him. So it's neither relativism well that's okay and you tried and we often do that don't we? Well you gave it a crack, well you're a good person, well you didn't mean harm. The father's not into that but he's also not into rules, regulations, putting the law back on the son because the gospel is a third way, a deeper way, a way that comes from the gut, that comes from deep compassion and empathy, true love. Verse 25, meanwhile the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of his servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and would not go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing. And in that time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends, yet this son of yours, it's actually his brother as well, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes and you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. So the older brother represents religion and conformity, he's working hard in the fields. A lot of us will probably align with this. I know I do. This is a struggle in my walk with God every day not to feel like I'm doing the good stuff. Why aren't you blessing me, God? I've always obeyed. Why does it not work out, God? This is a struggle for me. This may be a struggle for some of you. Sometimes it comes with people that have been around church a long time. He doesn't even know about the party. He has to be informed by a servant that there's even a party going on. He didn't get an invite. He's hearing music, but he's not dancing. He's seeing feasting, but he wasn't invited to eat. He's rejected. He's feeling left out unincluded, and so he flies off the handle. I've never left. I've never squandered money. I've never run away. I've slaved for you. Interesting the language, isn't it? The choice of word. I've slaved for you, Dad. Let's reorientate that. I've slaved for you, God. We've all been there. God has the eyes of a father and he hopes to create the heart of a son with us. But often we look back at him and go, I have done stuff. I have been a leader in the church. I have tried to be good. I've prayed my prayers, I helped some people out. We're totally missing the gospel. You see, the father in this story is misunderstood. The gospel is misunderstood by both the younger son and the older son. They both missed the point. They both miss the heart of the Father. And so often we miss the gospel as a third way because we can't help but worry about conforming on what's right. We can't help but trying to bend the rules and get out of things and live a relative type lifestyle. The older son is ignorant to the truth. It's like he's in the church. It's like he knows the gospel. It's like he reads the Bible every day. He's out in the fields doing the hard work for God, but he's actually ignorant to the truth about his very own life. One, he's alive The younger son was dead, spiritually dead. Two, he's in the house. He's found. The younger son was lost. Three, he's an owner. He owns the family business. He's working in the field. He has all the wealth of the home to himself, yet he can't see it. He can only see himself enslaved to his father. He's missing the point of the father. He's missing the point of the gospel. You see, the older brother lived like a son. He had the money, the wealth, he had the home, he had the dad, he had everything. But his heart got revealed as the heart of a slave. The younger son, the prodigal son, lived like a slave He was enslaved to money and parties and reckless living and prostitutes and all these kind of things. He he followed the way of the world. He followed the reckless living. He followed his own desires and impulses and filled himself with everything he wanted. But really, he was just enslaved to his own impulses. But through repentance, he discovered that there was a heart of a son inside, that he could come back to being a son. Verse 31, his father said to him, the older brother, Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. You're a son, you're an owner, you're not a slave. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother. He was dead, and he's come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. The party is for the younger son, but it's the father's party. The father invites the younger son because of his repentance. I have sinned against you, dad, and I've sinned against heaven. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. Sin, selfishness, it's a cosmic reality. Like David in Psalm 51, he says, I've sinned against God and against heaven. And this is, this is true repentance. We don't just realize our transgression against a person, but we realize that every transgression against a person is actually ultimately against God. And the father invites the son, come into my party, come and feast, come into the gospel, taste and see that the Lord is good, come to the wedding banquet and have everything the gospel has got to offer, joy and peace and freedom. And this is what the gospel does to the irreligious, it invites them in. And we can access the gospel if we're willing to say, I'm wrong, but I need Jesus. That's the only thing. You've got to repent in your heart. You've got to fall at the foot of the cross and say, I don't know everything. And I've tried everything, but I can't work it out and fall on your knees and say, would you let me in? And the father says, I invite you in. But similarly, the gospel comes to older brothers, comes to the moralists and the conformists and the rule orientated ones and pleads with them. Won't you come into the party? Won't you come and enjoy the freedom of the gospel? And so often these people are in church and these people have already said they follow Jesus and these people already believe, but still the gospel goes out like the Father and pleads, come in. But they can be stuck in their pride. Well, I wasn't invited. Well, the party started before I got there. Well, I've been working hard and done all the stuff and all these people... Haven't been here. I've been in this church for 15 years. That person walked in the door and got X, Y, Z. Sadly, the, the, the older brother is comparing and belittling and judging the repentance, the freedom of the gospel, touching his younger brother. I mean, his family's blood, but he can't see it. He can only see where he's missing out and the father's pleading with him. So many prodigal sons meet Jesus dramatically meet Jesus, dramatically are transformed by the gospel, sadly only to become grumpy older brothers in the church when they were meant to become fathers and mothers in the faith. The gospel is freely given by God to you to transform your life, that you can come from death to life, from lost to found. But don't take the gospel and repent and fall in love with God only to drift to the other side and just become an older brother, an older sister. God is trying to form you and shape you that you one day will be like a father and mother in the faith. That just like the father was to his son, that you would be that kind of person in the church, in the community, in your own family, in your workplace, like a fatherly, motherly person that embraces and with bowels of compassion empathises with people and loves the unlovely and thinks of the marginalised and prays of the person that's struggling. God didn't save you so you could become a judgmental older brother who's bitter in standing in the corner of the church saying, well, oh, the culture out there, oh, young people today, oh, they don't know their theology very well. That's not what you're saved for. You're saved to be a representation of the gospel, to become a father in the faith, to become somebody that can help God welcome back lost sons and daughters into his home. Religion. Let me go through this table quickly and then we're going to take communion together today. Don't have to give communion out yet, but we're going to take it at the end of the service. Sometimes people get scared of me and when I say things like that, people start moving. No, like you said communion. We'll start rushing around. It's all right. We'll take it in a moment. The older brother, the younger brother, the compassionate father, just to help really make this crystal clear. The older brother gets caught in spiritual pride, the younger brother gets caught in pride as well but it's more of a selfish pride. The grumpy older brother is bitter, judgmental, jaded, jaded about their Christianity and their faith and often orientated around fairness, where I've been unjustly dealt with or unfairly dealt with by God, the church, the government, whatever it is, my workplace, my boss... See, when we start young in the faith, and maybe you're new to the faith, maybe you've been in it for a long time, and you have to think back, but when we start young in the faith, our Christianity is so outer. We deal with addictions, and we deal with sexual promiscuity, and we deal with like lying, we deal with all these big outer things that hurt people and wrecked our lives and got us to the pig pen. But as we follow Jesus for a while and mature, We still have a ton of sin, but it's just not so visible. It's just not so outer. (laughs) And if I can say this to you very gently, in a lot of ways, they're worse because they're these secret sins and these inner thoughts. You might not even say them because, I mean, you're a nice guy, but you think them and they're rotten and they're not Christ-like, but they become inner sins of judgment, offense, they become the inner sin of, I don't do anything anymore. I don't actively follow Jesus anymore. I believe the stuff. I go to church every now and again, but my prayer life's gone. Wow. Is that sin? I don't know. You've got to wrestle that out with God. Because it's easy when like you had this addiction over here and then Jesus dealt with it. But now it's like, no one knows what you're sinning about anymore. Because your life's pretty good on the outside. Looks pretty Christian. But these are the worst sins. These are the sins that take longer to get to. These are the sins that come up after 10 years of Christianity, after 20 years of Christianity. The gospel is still the compassionate father that met you when you were repenting in all your ugliness and sin and snot and tears. He's still the compassionate father coming, pleading, come back to the party or stay in the party. Don't fade off to these inner things. The older brother or religion represents spiritual pride. Things like we know God spoke to me. I have a peace about doing X. That church down the road, eh, they worship like, eh. they don't pray enough. They don't understand the Bible. That sermon wasn't biblical enough. It loves the purity, which is not a bad thing. It loves things being right, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It loves everyone living the right way, the godly way, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But is it the gospel? Is it communicated in grace? You see, the gospel, we relate to God by grace. We have no right to come to God, but the grace of God. We're not good enough, but the grace of God. We don't know enough, but the grace of God. We have, need grace to pray. We need grace to listen to God. We need grace to love even sometimes our own family, let alone other people, let alone neighbours. We need grace to obey God and follow Him. But then irreligion is very different. It's more of a spiritual blend. We kind of blend up our spirituality. And you hear a lot these days, kind of a blend of religion and self and therapy and capitalism and healing stones and church attendance. And it's all mixed into this spiritual kind of thing. Sticking on our NFL theme today, Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time in the NFL, said about his faith, I think we're into everything. This is him talking about his home, his family in 2015 in a a New York Times article. He said, I think we're into everything. I don't know what I believe. I think there's a belief system. I'm just not sure what it is. I'm more spiritual, but not so religious. And this is very much the irreligious claim of today. Well, I'm not religious, conforming and all that boring stuff, but I'm spiritual. I still believe in stuff, I still have a spiritual life, but this is just irreligion, sugar-coated in fancy modern language, because Tom Brady's statement assumes that all religious claims to absolute truth are rubbish, and he makes his own absolute claim to religious truth, which is essentially my blended version of super-spirituality that I've come up with is actually the truth. It disrespects the truth claims of Christianity as well as Islam and Judaism and all belief systems by saying, they're all religion, I'm just spiritual. But by saying, I'm just spiritual, you're claiming that you have found another God which essentially makes you just as religious as everyone else. This is irreligion, a spiritual blend. Things like, I'm a good person, You don't need God to be moral, you don't need a religion to be a good person. It says things like, I know heaps of Christians, a lot of them aren't great, I know heaps of people who aren't Christians and a lot of them are great. Again, missing the point, as if church attendance makes you moral, it doesn't, only God is moral but He can move in our hearts, maybe in a church environment but church attendance doesn't make you a good person and no one that comes to church with the right motives comes because they want to be a good person or are a good person. You come to church, hopefully, as I come to church, because I actually recognise I'm a bad person (laughs) and I need God and I want to grow and I want to be healed and I want to be redeemed. Now, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here because some of you might be sitting here going, but what about the holiness of God? What about the truth of God? What about righteousness and this can be difficult because there is some truth in what the older brother was talking about there is rules God does have standards if God did not have righteous holy standards then God would be a liar you see if God didn't have righteous and holy standards he couldn't be a judge and we call him a judge if God didn't judge and make rulings on our behaviour, on our thoughts, on our heart, on our life, then he would be a liar and he, wouldn't, he couldn't be God if he wasn't a judge because who makes the ultimate cosmic call on right living? It's God. You can jump to the next slide. And the older brother's on to something here. What about the holiness of God? What about the truth of God? What about the prodigal son? He did behave inappropriately. But then we know the other side of the coin, don't we? We know that God is love and grace, but then some of us really struggle with that. Well, if church and gospel has just all become this cultural lovey-dovey thing and just everyone's kind of right and don't worry, you're not that bad of a sinner. And we don't want to live in this miry muck either of like, oh, we're all sinners, we're all bad and we're never going to be good. And like, isn't there some way forward? Yeah, there is a way forward. It's a combination of both. It's truth, but it's grace. It's righteousness with unrighteousness. You're not a saint, you're not a sinner. You're a saint-sinner. The two need to be meshed together, if I can do that, even though I'm breaking all the rules of English grammar, but you're a saint-sinner. You're a saint-sinner. slash sinner. You're a saint-sinner. hyphen sinner. The aim of Christianity isn't to be a saint. The aim of Christianity isn't to wallow in being a sinner. But how do you reconcile these two things? Let me show you very quickly, it's like this, we reconcile the holiness of God and the grace of God by understanding that God required payment for our sins. You can jump to the next slide. God required it, that's the holiness of God. He required repentance, He requires good behaviour, He requires your heart. Being transformed, he he is the judge, the cosmic judge who requires everybody to be judged and everyone has been judged and will be judged at the end of time. That is the holiness of God. He is the judge. His wrath and his anger at sin and the fallenness of humanity must be satisfied. So I'm not leaving that out. The only person that could pay the price for this debt that we had to God and His wrath was us because we're the sinners. Humanity is the criminals. We live in a fallen world. We say wrong things. We do things. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are unrighteous. The only person who could pay the price was us. But the only person who couldn't pay the price because of our lack of holiness was us. There's a conundrum. This is where the gospel comes in. We're the only one that can pay for our sins because we've done wrong, aren't we? But we're the only one that can't pay for our sins because we're not perfect and we're sinless. We can't even come before God. We don't even we can't even get an appointment with Him because we're fallen and lost and rotten. God required it, we couldn't do it. Jesus did do it. The only way that the sins of man, the debt of humanity, could be paid, is that God had to do it himself. But God couldn't do it himself because he's holy. So that we're still in a conundrum. So God had to come down in Jesus Christ, not as God, but as man. So God became the son of man. God was God, but he was also fully human. Human. He was king of all the universe, but he was a Jewish man from Nazareth that lived 2,000 years ago, That's the mo- that we have the most evidence of all ancient figures in antiquity. It's Jesus Christ. We have the most written about him. He was a real historical person. He wasn't floating one inch off the ground as a spirit and lived on the earth like God. He lived on the ground. He, he peed and pooed and sweated and was tempted and had family and had friendships, and struggled, and prayed, and wrestled with his destiny, and wasn't sure, and cried out for God, and read the scriptures, and went to church every Sunday. As I was a synagogue in the Jewish thing, but you get what I mean. He was a real person. He had to become the God-Man, the Man-God, who was the only person that could do it, and that's how we reconcile the justice, holiness, and wrath of God with the love. And the mercy and the compassion of God, we reconcile it in Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. That allows us to say, if we go back to the table, that I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. I am accepted through Christ, now I can obey. I love the laws of God, the rules of God, the directives of God, the commands of Jesus Christ. I love them in the Bible. They give me a way to live. But the only way that these rules of God and commands of God and way of following Jesus make sense or is even possible is if my heart is transformed through Christ, then I can obey. Religion is different. It says, I obey and I follow the rules of God so that I'm accepted by God and I'm welcomed into my church and my friends think that I'm a good person. That is not the gospel. Irreligion says, I disobey, therefore I'm accepted. I live outside the lines. I colour outside the lines. I break the rules. I'm the bad boy. I'm the cool guy that everyone likes because he does the stuff and he's not afraid and I speak to power and I don't do that and I'm not going to do what my parents want me to do. Whatever, whatever that is, We do that and we disobey in order to be accepted, to be liked, to be welcomed, to find some friends, to fit in somewhere. To use an extreme example, gangs want you to disobey, therefore you're accepted into the gang. To use an extreme example, some religious organisations, not only Christians but lots of religion, demand obedience before acceptance. Discover Church is a church that's centred on the gospel, which means first and foremost, you're accepted... Through Christ, therefore, we can help you how to live and follow in Christ. Your acceptance is not in this church. Your acceptance is first in Christ. And then this church becomes relevant. We cannot answer your need for a home. We cannot answer your lost state. We cannot answer your recklessness or your religion. Only Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus can transform your heart. Once your heart is transformed, the church all of a sudden becomes relevant. We can help you grow. We can help you obey. We can help you learn. We can help you take that relationship with God deeper. This is what it means to be a gospel-centered church. To have a gospel-centered marriage, to have gospel-centered friendships, to have a gospel-centered small group, to have a gospel-centered business, if you want to have a business that's based on Jesus Christ, is to be accepted first then to obey. It's to look to God first and then to do business. It's to bring God into the centre of my marriage and in my home and my friendships and then it is to live my life. The only other option outside of being gospel-centred is to live a life that gets stuck in slavery. The older brother lived like a son but possessed the heart of a slave. When the pressure came on, And he burst his bubble, and he blew his cap, and he got angry. The language that came out, the language of his heart was, I have slaved, I have worked, I have obeyed everything you told me to do, and I don't even get an invite to the party. The heart of a slave. The younger brother lived like a slave. Lived reckless, lived making mistakes, lived missing it all the time, ended up in a pig pen, idiot. Idiot. But when push came to shove, he came to his senses and said, if I go and repent, I can maybe maybe come home. He didn't quite have that last bit right yet. Am I going to be a son, a son? He wasn't sure. But he knew what was important was repentance. And then what he hoped for was confirmed. The father didn't say, well, you can come in, but you're going to have to tick these boxes and go through these courses and deal with some things and then we'll let you in. They didn't do that. They didn't put religion on it. But he also didn't put irreligion on him. He didn't say, well, that's fine, and you tried, and you had a go, well done, like, you know, you're not a bad person, you just got into some bad friends, it's cool. He didn't also condone or excuse his sin, because if God excuses our sin, he's not God, he's a liar. If God excuses our sin, he's not a judge, and his wrath means nothing, and unrighteousness is useless. And postmodernism would like us to think that. If I was God... I would be kind. If I was God, I wouldn't let kids with cancer die. Because we think we know how God should act. But we totally often misunderstand the righteousness and the holiness of God that must be satisfied. To use super religious language, his wrath must be appeased. If there's a murder, someone must go to jail. If the law is broken, there must be consequences. We expect that in our society, but somehow we look at God and go, that's cool, like you just, you know, fine, you tried, you're human. That's why we can never make it on our own. We can never try hard enough. We can never rise high enough. We're always going to find ourselves enslaved to religion or irreligion unless we're in unison with the gospel. I, can't, I need to say sorry, but I can't. I need to repent, but I can't. We need the gospel. I'm going through trials and pain. It's difficult. It seems unfair. I've been working in the field. I'm getting nothing for this life. This is sucks. Working on my marriage and it's getting nowhere. Working at my job. My bosses are whatever. But the gospel says there's a way through. Rather than criticism and anger, rather than passivity and drawing back and being depressed, the gospel says, there's a way through to deal with your emotions, to deal with your heart. Rather than being enslaved to results, business, high performance, leadership, all these great things, I'll rise up, I'll do something, I'll make some money, I'll invest, I'll whatever. The gospel says it's okay to slow down, just pray, just focus on what's eternal. Money will come and go, businesses will rise and fall One day you'll be a great leader, the next day you won't be a leader and no one will know you, but it's okay. You're a son of the living God. As we just hold our communion this morning, I really want you to think on one thing. The center of God's story is the gospel, and the core of the gospel is substitution. This is such an important statement. The center of God's story is the gospel. And the core of the gospel is substitution. The whole story of God, just close your eyes, just meditate on him. The whole story of God from it is in the beginning to Revelations 22 is centred on the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The very core and the centre point of that gospel is substitution. You're a slave, but Jesus substituted himself in to break the chains of bondage. You were a sinner, and while you're still a sinner, Jesus substituted himself in to pay the price. You deserve to be judged. We all deserve to suffer the cosmic consequences of our humanity and our fallen state, but Jesus substituted himself in, into the universe, into the cosmic story that we're all living through and became the center point of humanity, the world and everything.